Hey, welcome to the Transforming Life Church podcast. We hope this encourages you and inspires you in your journey with Christ. So sit back, relax, and check out this week's message. Um, we're on our um, fifth week of our series of Pressure Points. This week is on conflict, if you might have noticed. Um, as we talked last week, how our words and our tongues are hard to control. And if we can control our tongues, we can control the man, right? We can start controlling it. And so when we're in conflict, it's, it's very similar to that, that um, although the words come out, but the words come from interior motives. And that's where our conflict that James talks about in chapter 4, uh, that our internal conflict is now um, our passions and our desires, very similar with temptations. Uh, conflicts are also caused by those same passions and same desires. And so we saw um, last week how the words that we have will affect our lives, but a lot of times we'll, we'll tame the tongue and we'll bite the tongue and we'll say, okay, I'm not going to say it, but yet inside of us, those passions and everything still roll out, but, but we can do the church thing where we just talk and, and we play a face and we, we pretend that we're not angry, we pretend we're not upset. And, and James wanted to get to the heart of that because he knew that if you can tame your tongue, that's good. Um, you can control it, you can steer your body, but if you don't truly change on the inside, if your motives and your passions and your desires are inherently evil or inherently bad that, that drive you to a way that causes conflict, then it's never going to end. So he wanted to take a step further from the tongue, from your words, and really dive into your motives. And we all have a lot of times, a very hard time dealing with our motives. Uh, Lynn Buzz, Buzzard gives a negative advice on how to turn a disagreement into a feud. He said there's eight rules to escalating conflict. Number one, be sure to develop and maintain a healthy fear of conflict, letting your own feelings build up so you are in an explosive frame of mind. Two, if you must state your concerns, be as vague and general as possible, then the other person cannot do anything practical to change the situation. Number three, assume that you know all the facts and you are totally right. Um, use the Bible verses, they're very helpful. And speak prophetically for truth and justice, and, and do most of the talking. Four, with a touch of defiance, announce that you're willing to talk with anyone who wishes to discuss the problem with you. Uh, but do not take the step to initiate such a conversation. Number five, hold tight to whatever evidence you can find that shows the other person is merely jealous of you. Number six, Judge the motives of the other party on any previous experience that showed failure or unkindness. And keep track of those angry words. And number seven, if the discussion should become serious, view the issue as a win-lose struggle. Avoid all possible solutions and go for total victory and unconditional surrender. And don't put too many tables on the option, or options on the table. Number eight, pass the buck, right? It's always the easiest. If you're not able to come to what you want as a solution, indicate um, you don't have the power to settle, that you need your spouse or your partner or a bank or something else to, to come in and help. Um, so you can't make that decision. These are funny things about conflict revolution, but history shows us an interesting account of conflict. A French novelist, um, Alexandre Dumas, um, once had a disagreement with a young politician. And this politician 
Um, they, they were arguing, they were getting into conflict, and they knew it was eventually going to come to a duel. B and both of them were great shots, superb in their craft. They decided to draw lots rather than just a duel. And so whoever lost the draw of the lot would have to just shoot themselves and be done with it. So Alexander Dumas, he drew the lot, the short straw, and so he took his loaded pistol, he walked into his office, and he closed the door behind him, and then all his party guests just wait and listen for that shot that was gonna ring out to end his career. The shot finally was fired. They opened, his friends rushed in, saw the smoking gun in his hand, and Mr. Dumas said, it looks like he missed. <laughs> so one thing you gotta realize that we find in church conflict, we find it also in the world, in our families. And throughout history, church has been a center of war and conflict. Even the beginning of Christianity and the arguments, conflict arose. But thankfully, we have scripture that deals with that. And a critical conflict comes from the cause, and the God has a solution. So let's turn to James 4. We're going to read verse 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you do not ask. You, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy, an enemy with the God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose, and it is no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Father, we just thank you for your word. Father, we just ask right now that you open our ears, open our hearts to what you have for us. Lord, let us just come into your presence. Let us hear exactly what you want us to see on conflict, Lord. We love you and we thank you. Amen. As you can see, for over 1900 years, um, we're still asking where does conflict come from, right? Why, what is the source of fights among us, right? What, why are husbands beating up their wives? Why do friends treat each other so badly? Why do we tend to hurt those we love the most? In the book, Love Must Be Tough, James Dobson recorded an illustration graphically uh, by a teacher that gave an assignment. I would be happy if just. He gave a writing assignment to all the students. Um, there was sixth grade class. 
And in the assignment, the teacher thought they would say, uh, if I just had a bicycle, or I just had a doll, or I just had, they thought they expected these kind of things. But what, some of the responses, because of the conflict that we have in our own homes, yet alone in the church, is I wish my parents would not fight. I wish my father would not come back. I wish my mother didn't have that boyfriend. I wish I could get straight A's so my dad would love me. I wish I had one mom and one dad so the kids wouldn't make fun of me. And even one child wrote, I wish I had an M1 rifle so I could shoot those who make fun of me. Although Jews had conflict in Martin Luther Church, the same conflict that thrives there spills down to our families. And that conflict will also extend into our society. So if we don't resolve it here, if we can't live without conflict in the church, how do we expect to spill it over into our families or spill it over into the society we live in? So we're gonna start with number one, the source of conflicts. Before we get into the source, which is usually us, but I wanna tell you a quick story. And this is good, because David, if you think about the conflict that he avoided in order to get to the giant that he was supposed to get to. David was a young man, if you guys know, son of Jesse. But David had some critical points in his life where he could have chose the wrong path. He could have did conflict in a way that did not lead him to his destiny. And that's why it's so important that we avoid the conflict. You see, David had an older brother, Iliad. In Iliab, Samuel saw him, and what he saw in Iliab, he saw in Saul, which was height, not heart. And so he almost anointed him, but God said, no, that's not the one. But then he saw in David, the heart that you need to be a king. And so that's why he anointed him. But David had two pivotal moments in his life that if he chose differently, we would not be telling the same story today. First, his father, Jesse, told him, take this bread and this grain uh, to your brothers and, and these fine cheeses, to the leaders, to the battle right, where they were fighting the Philistines. David could have said, why am I doing this meaningless test? Why am I just to just stop what I'm doing and do that? But he chose to do what, the thing that his father did. And when he chose that, it led him to the path one step closer, closer to his Goliath. And when he got there, his, he was talking to one of the men that was going on, but his brother Eliab heard his voice. And when he heard his voice, he said, what are you doing here? Where did you leave the sheep? And see, what happened is what the enemy does, the enemy sometimes puts conflict in our lives to, to put a fake enemy in front of us that we're fighting that instead of fighting the real giant. And so David could have went on. If you notice in verse 28 in that chapter, he was, they fall back and forth real quick, but David threw in a quick jab to let him know he wasn't a punk. But David did something that everybody I think should learn, and I'm trying to learn, is that when you start coming into conflict, David did something nice. If you look further in 28, he said, where are you at? But then he said, David turned and started talking to somebody else. Because rather than fighting his brother, the one that he was supposed to be fighting for, he decided to turn his focus on something else instead of just arguing about that conflict. And so because of that, 
David now has put one step further to fight that giant is what he's supposed to do. And a lot of times the enemy will put something in your path to get you fighting that instead of what you're really supposed to be fighting in your life. So now just look straight ahead real quick if you're married. Sometimes you're fighting against what you're supposed to be fighting for, right? We need to call a timeout sometimes. I know a lot of times in my marriage, if something is said, the first thing I say is, what are you trying to get me to do? And, and that usually disarms a lot. Like, what do you mean, what are you trying to get me to do? I'm like, what are you trying to get me to do? What do you want from me? Do you want me to yell? Do you want me to get upset? What are you, what are you looking for in this situation? I'm trying to disarm it because I know that's not my fight. My fight is not against my spouse. And sometimes we have to call that time out and say, look, look, we're not fighting against each other. The enemy is what we're fighting against, not this. In the same way in church conflict, when we're fighting, we start thinking about, hey, what are you looking to respond for? Why did you do these? It's okay to talk about these things. If someone says something offbeat to you, say, hey, what were you looking for when you said that? Why, why would you say that? And if they say, oh, it's nothing, leave it there, it's nothing. Because a lot of times what happens, we get into our mind, we get into our head, we look at past situations, past circumstances, and we judge it upon them. And then we walk through bitter and angry. And the next time that person does the same thing because that's just what that person does, we explode off on them. Or we hold it in and just get bitter and then we complain to somebody else about how bad they are. Can you believe they said that to me? Can you believe they did this? So before we get to the source, I just kind of want to go for what conflict does in our life. It, it creates turmoil. It gets us focused on the wrong enemy when we're on the purpose for God. When it holds us back from where we're going, it's going to stop that. And we want to make sure that we stay on the path that God has designed for us. So the first thing we come to is selfish passions. Right? It says, when you, call, when you cause quarrels and cause fights among you, it's not that those passions are at war with you. We all have passions. A lot of times we say, I'm a passionate people. I was, my people are passionate. But our passion, if it's not leading us to God, if it's not fulfilling the desires of God's will in our lives, in the lives of others, then we really need to reevaluate what our passion is. Because I know what I do personally is say, okay, look at the two commandments that Jesus gave me. Love God and love all else. And love others before myself. So if my passion is going to do anything but those other two things, then I try to reevaluate, okay, is this going to benefit others? Is this only going to benefit me? Is this something selfish that I want because everybody else wants it? Or, or is this something I desire because I see everybody else having it? And so we have to look at these things. That, is our selfish passions wrong? Or are we looking at things wrongly in a way that drives us? Then we get to universal desires. These are part of our passions. These are desires that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the sin they died. So from that point on, it was no longer God taking care of every need. There was no longer God doing everything for them. They had the comfort of the garden gone. Right, so from that point forward, they had to find life to be fulfilled within their own selves. They had to satisfy their own desire. The desire to be somebody. The desire to have security. The desire to be loved. And the desire to do something worthwhile. 
So instead of resting in the contentment with all their needs supplied by God, they chose this, which set us humanity on the path of how do we fulfill our desires? How do we do these things that we already had, but now are gone because of that? And then we have unfulfilled desires. And then James says you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So frustrated by people in circumstances, we lash out to all those around us. We are willing to hurt and destroy an effort to meet our own needs. And after all, since we're all competing for the same thing, we do anything to eliminate the competition. And we envy what we think others have and grieve as long as we don't have them and continually struggle until we get our way. And this is the issue with our, our desires that are unfulfilled, that we're constantly in a battle and constantly in this thing. And then he says we have this because of our prayerlessness. Right? It says you don't have because you do not ask. But prayerlessness is a symptom of our independence from God. Right? We need to, to combat prayerlessness and attitudes which go along with it. We say, I'm, I'm going to do these things my way. This is just a little thing. I can handle this on my own. Right? I'm just perfectly capable of running my own life. I will decide what is best for me and my family. Right? This is what James was talking about, prayerlessness. A lot of us might not see it as that because we're like, oh, we're not going to pray about that little thing. But no, God says, I want total dependence on me because if you have any of you, we now know where it's going to lead us. We're going to lead into self-desire. So as long as we look for fulfillment in life from any other source than God, the conflict will never cease. We'll never be content with who we are what we have, where we're going, what we've done, if we do not lay this down and lay ourselves down and truly follow Christ the way he said to. We'll never be content, we will never continue, and we'll continue to feel frustrated, and we'll often hurt others, and others will hurt us in the process. And then James moves on and says wrong motives, right? He said, you're asking and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So this is asking the wrong motives, right? Instead of prayer yielding to God's plan and purpose, it's a prayer to gratify your own desires. I mean, how many times have we prayed, God, give me this. Lord, let me hit the lotto so I can help others, right? Help me, you know, give me this car so I can drive people around with, right? What are the purposes of this? We, we have wrongful motives on a lot of the things that we pray for and feeling to fulfill something that's missing, to, to make us feel better about the situation that we're in. Rather than being content in God, we spend our time praying for something that we shouldn't even want. And if God ultimately filled those prayers, it would only strengthen our independence from Him. Because what he wants is a people dependent on him, not because he needs to be good. He wants to know that you can't do it. If you could do it, he wouldn't need to send a son. If you could change your life, he wouldn't need 
just shed his blood on the cross. If this is something you could do on your own, then why are we even here? Just for support group? Like AA meeting? You know, hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. We get better. You know, it's because we want total reliance on who we are. Because it's fulfillment in him, he knows that true life exists. Because when we constantly try to fill it with the wrong desires, the wrong passions, it really is going to lead to conflict because you'll never be full. You'll always be wanting. You'll always be doing that. And God says, look, I will give all your needs. Just rely on me. And if you can, there's one question that you need to ask yourself. For me to be happy is blank. And really think about it and what that means. Because if it's defined as a job or a goal or a possession or another person, or can you honestly say that your life for you, the fulfillment of your desires is Jesus Christ, not to be like Christ, not to serve Christ, to receive from him all you need. Are you still struggling to meet your own needs, fighting and warring and crushing competition? Or have you learned to rest in his fullness, in his fulfillment? And that's what we need to do. And second, we get to the seriousness of compromise. James goes on to tell us how serious this is. He even yells, right, with his exclamation point. He says, you adulterous people, right? It resembles adultery. And he uses his strong language because a lot of times in the Bible, God, you know, Christ, we're the bride of Christ. So he, he uses this parable, this, this way of metaphor of saying it, that in adultery, it occurs outside your marriage. When you, you look outside for some passion or some desire or some sexual fulfillment or even emotional fulfillment that you're not getting inside your marriage. As third parties added to your relationship, breaking the, the marriage bond. In spiritual adultery, the same thing occurs, but what we end up doing is instead of a something, we put the world into our marriage bed. Right? Where we step right outside. I think about how how the world refers to the philosophies and practices of the fallen men, right? And we have devised an effort apart from God. So when we follow the world, when we live in the world, we're not saying, we're saying, God, you're not enough. And, and that's what he was saying. He's like, look, it's, it's adultery. You are cheating on me with the world because the world has nothing for you to offer. Yes, you have to live in it. I understand that. Yet we can't be so godly that we're no use to it. But yet if we're getting our fulfillment in it, then we have to look at the situation that we're in. So because when we crave acceptance from the world, we reject God, it says, and we are set ourselves against him through we are his enemy. Next, it's, it's insensitive. James reminds us that the Holy Spirit that's living in us is grieved with jealousy for our relationship with him. So when we look to any other source to meet our needs, we are treading on the feelings of a lifelong companion and a divine confidant that is living in us. And these things are serious. These things will grieve it. And it, it reveals our arrogance as a people. That God, you are not enough. 
Just like when you cheat on your wife, you're telling your wife, you're not enough. I need you to love you now. Imagine the hurt and the pain that she will feel from that. Or the other way around. Then he leads us through what I love about it. It's like, look, all these things. But he says, look, there's more grace. And a lot of times we, we look at grace and Christians understand grace for our salvation that we could have never done it on our own. But we forget about the grace in our common life. The lifestyle that we live is lived in grace. Right? He erased the sin debt. He gave them righteousness standing before God. But he's also made us spiritually alive to enjoy intimate fellowship with him. Right? And when it tends to, to be a little more fuzzy to a lot of us with the Christian life, we tend to view grace as God covering up our failures, right? Our helplessness or endure difficult things. But somehow we fail to understand the grace that Christian's life still means. God's doing all that we can do that we can never do ourselves. Right? So he's meeting every need that we couldn't meet no matter how hard we tried. So the grace of God is abundantly, not only in the salvation, but it's in the everyday life. That God will continue to supply our needs, continually fulfill that desire that we have, continually fulfill that hole that we, we think we need to fill with the world. And no matter what we get or what we do or how we buy things, it's emptiness. I'm sure it might bring joy for a little bit, but inevitably you end up in the same place, looking something to fulfill it. And then he looks at the means of grace. Right, God gives grace to the humble. Those who admit their helplessness of being helplessness and being to look on God to meet their needs. A lot of times we have so much pride. And I know when I was young, I was always told it's a man's job to provide. You gotta you gotta provide for your family, you it's your position. And when I started becoming a Christian, I started reading the Bible, it never said that once. It said, look, you follow me and I will meet your needs. You do what I say and I will take care of you. And that, that was so freeing to me as, a, as an adult because I never had to worry about it. Like, oh, I got to meet my needs. Like, I got to provide. Like, I don't have to do anything. God said, I follow him. He'll make sure every need I have is met. And I can tell you what, since I've been doing that, I've never had anything unmet. I never had a bill unpaid, even if I lost a job or in between jobs or nothing ever went there. It wasn't my responsibility. God said, I will take care of you. And God hates independent living. That's why he resists the proud. Our pride and arrogance is what usually gets in the way. That's what made us fall. We wanted to be like God. Or I can do this myself. I'm a man. I can do this. Or I'm going to do what's best for me and my family. And we quit thinking about our community. We quit thinking about our fellow believers. And this is what ends up causing conflict. Because I put my desires and my needs before anybody else's. And really, he's, he's forcing us to choose between the world and himself. It's that simple. He's like, look, you want the world? Take it. It's yours. But if you want life, and life everlasting, and life abundantly, I already told you the way. But the good thing is, three, there are steps to correction. So not only did we learn, okay, this is what conflict causes. This is what, what our motives, our evil desires is going to do. This is what it's going to look like. 
But he's going to ask Jesus, okay, here's how you're going to correct it. First, he says, be, you know, be separated, right? So we have to be submissive. First part of that separation is that it's hard to be submissive to Christ at all times because our desires, our body, our wants, our needs, or even in our church, um, we're designed like, God wants you to have that. Why doesn't he want you to have that nice car, that big house? Uh, God's blessing you with that. But that, but that ultimately doesn't lead us anywhere. That ultimately doesn't do nothing for us. Yeah, we have a bigger house we can entertain, but are we doing it? We have a bigger house where we can invite people in for dinners, but are we doing that? Americans have bigger yards, but they have no front yard. Everything's in the backyard, hidden from away from people. We no longer kids playing in the street or, or playing in the front yard or sitting on the porch and talking like we used to. I mean, the neighborhood's not even designed that way anymore. And as a Christian community, to be set submissive, we have to submit ourselves to the plans of God. I mean, given our right to choose our circumstances, our health, he puts an end to our conflict that characterizes our lives. And when we are no longer dependent on ourselves, we will truly find life, and the frustration and hostility of this experience will end, and you will enjoy a life that is separated, that is submissive. So then he says, be separated. So after you submit, it's in an order, right? Submit, then be separated. He says, don't be cozy with the world, right? For example, if you remember the story of Abraham and Lot, their sheep and she you know, all their their sheep and everything just got so large that they needed to, to branch out because it was just too much, you know, livestock for the area they lived in. So Abraham went to his nephew Lot and said, look, look all out, pick what land you want. Lot looked out and, and looked at the best land and he knew that Sodom was over there. And Sodom was still an evil town at that time, but he chose to put his place beside it. He said, you know, I'll take that lot of land. And see, that's how it starts when we're to be separated, we, he starts by just getting on the edge of the town. But if you notice later on, he's actually living in the town. And then pretty soon, God puts an end to it. And if you look, <laughs> the angels come in and they had to drag Lot out by his wrist. But then his wife turned back and looked because she could not give up the world that she was used to. And she no longer wanted to be separated. So, so it's a gradual thing that happens. If you notice, Lot just started out fine with Abraham, but then he moved close to the world, and then he eventually just moved into the world, and he was living the same lifestyle, and the same thing was going on, that he couldn't even convince his son-in-laws to leave because they thought he was crazy, because that's how much they enjoyed the world. So then we need to resist, right? It's one of the biggest things that we have to do. Satan initiated the lies so we can be like God. That we don't need God. And the lie keeps portraying us, and that's what the world is doing. It's like we don't need God because we're like God. We're a God of our own lives. We're a God of our own destiny. I can do what I want to do. I can, I can create my own future. I can imagine what I want to do and do it without God. But in the end, we only know that it brings misery and you're never fulfilled. 
And resisting the devil begins with rejecting the lie and accepting the fact that we haven't, that we can't have a life. Accept the fact that we can't have a life without God. That's part of it. Worship team, you guys can come up. The thing with this and being separate is that you get a lot of Christians that got just enough Jesus in them that the world makes them uncomfortable, but not enough, but just enough of the world that they're not comfortable with Jesus. And that's the issue that we have going on a lot of the times, is that we're, we're so comfortable in who we are and we don't want to change. And conflict is what we strive for. I remember as a young man, I love conflict. I used to say things just to get people to come back at me because I enjoyed it so much. I think I did it to Londa's mom all the time, just to watch her get mad. But I found joy in it because I was living in the world and I enjoyed the conflict. And next you've got to receive. You've got to receive God's grace. Right? Drawing near to God means he will get, meet all our needs and supply whatever we want and require to face our circumstances. And as we draw near to him, it says he will draw near to us. So the more that we keep pressing in, the more we keep saying, God, I choose you over this world. God, I choose you over my desires, over my passions. The more he's going to draw closer to you. And you're going to feel that love that you've been missing. You're going to feel that rejection go away because God is always there. And then you cease having religion and start truly having relationships with in a way that you were designed to have. And then reject. we got to reject the sinful attitudes and actions. And the order that he put this, like I said, was very important. First we resist. Then we reject the lie continually tied to feed us. And second, we draw near to God, allowing him to do all the things that we couldn't do on our own. And only then can we rest in the depends upon him, dependence upon Him? Do we find the power to overcome all situations that we're in? And all habits of sinful nature. And then He said, Be sober minded. Why does James give us a commandment to mourn and weep? When's the last time you cried about the sin you committed? When's the last time sin made you uncomfortable? When's the last time that when you did something you didn't weep and go, God, please keep me from this? He's saying if you want to take this serious, you're going to have to mourn and weep. You're going to have to turn your joy in this world into mourning and go, God, I need more than what I have here. God, I need more than what the world offers me. I'm tired of living this life in motion. I'm tired of going through the same fight, the same cycles. Until we get to that point of mourning and weeping, then you're going to continually be in conflict because you're not going to, you're going to be constantly riding that fence of going, God, I want you, but I want the world. God, I want all you have to offer, but I really love this stuff here. And until we get to the total reliance, and really more than weep about what's happening, about what we're gradually walking into. Like Lot, he, he moved close to it, but eventually you will be fully in it. 
And that's the point. It's a gradual motion. And if we don't wake up and we become sober-minded and go, okay, God, you show me what it is. And start mourning and weeping for what we're going through. It's just going to continue on over and over. So how do we live a conflict-free life? Man, we resist. We resist with all we got. We get with friends, like we said before. And you say, look, I can't do it on my own. You're going to need to be my accountability partner. My desires and passions, I know are evil. I'm not desiring the right things. And we receive. We start receiving all that God has for us. And then we reject the enemy's continued lies and conflicts. He's trying to put enemies in front of us that we fight instead of truly fighting the enemy. And we never get to our Goliath. And when we do that, we're going to be more prepared to fight. We'll be ready when the enemy comes our way because we acknowledge these evil passions. We acknowledge the reason. If we can identify the enemy, if we know who he is, and that's why you have to talk about it. That's why if someone does say something, address the conflict. Don't hold it up and bottle it up and just say that's who they are. And then one day rage out against them. We're all humans. We all make mistakes. We all say things that we mean or we do mean. But call us out on it. There's nothing wrong to say, hey, what did you want out of that? Or what were you looking to get? And it's fine. We will come clean, all of us. You know? And until they do, keep calling them out. Say, look, what are you looking for? works, I'm telling you, it disarms pretty fast. But now comes the hard part. We're going to have to go out there in the world where all the passions and desires we have are, are fulfilled in what the world designs it to be fulfilled in. And we're going to have to walk that path. And that's where we come together. So if there's any of you that say, you know what, I'm tired of living for the world. I'm tired of following my passions, my desires. The altar team will be here to pray with you. Or if there's someone that says, you know what, I want this relationship with this God you speak of. I want to walk, I want to be fully dependent on someone beside myself. I'm tired of trying to do it on my own. Well, I have an altar team here for you if the altar team wants to come up. If you want to do these things, want to be free from from conflict, free from these things right now. God says, look, I'm here. Let's close with prayer. Father, Lord, we ask you to continue to to bring things to mind, Father God, that, that we can reject it. Father, we need your help to reject. We need your help to let us receive what you have. Father, let us continue to die of ourselves. Let us continue to walk the path that you have. Father, let us not keep getting distracted by the enemy's lies of this conflict so we can fight the true enemy in our lives. Father, we just love you and we thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in this week. If you'd like more info about our church, if you'd like to make a donation to our ministry here at Transforming Life, go to www.tlchurchpc.com. If you haven't been to our church yet, we would love to meet you. Come by for a life-changing experience. God bless.